1: Hi, this is Mika Hakkinen, and you are listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the
2: Grid, presented by the new Bose noise-cancelling headphones 700. My name is Tom Clarkson, and my goodness, do we have a treat for you this week. My guest is one of the fastest and bravest men I've ever met. His commitment in a racing car was stunning to watch, particularly on a qualifying lap, And he somehow came back from a horrifying accident at the end of 1995, not only to win races, but to win two world championships. I'm talking, of course, about the original flying fin, Mika Hakkinen. In short, mika has been there and done it. He beat Etten Senna in the same car, ditto Nigel Mansell. He had some fantastic scraps with Michael Schumacher, a rivalry that began in the junior formulas way before they got to Formula One. And he found an inner strength after that Adelaide crash that very few people in the world possess. Mika's an inspirational figure, and he retired at the end of 2001 with the respect of the Formula One paddock. Respect for his speed, respect for the manner in which he went racing, respect for his bravery, and respect for his decency as a human being. We sat down in Monaco recently, and the result was Mika as I'd never heard him before. He was relaxed, thoughtful, and very insightful. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Mika, moi. Oh, yes, that's finished, definitely, yeah. (laughs) That is the extent of my finish. (laughs) (laughs) But moi,
2: welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, Mika... This year we're celebrating 20 years since your second world championship. So when you look back at that and when you look back at Formula One, how important
1: was Formula One to you? Well, yes, exactly. 20 years ago, it, it winning winning a world championship is definitely... So it's, it's a long time ago. Even, uh, you know, wise, wise, it is a long time ago, but some reason it feels like yesterday because all these motions were... What I went through to able to achieve that victory, you know, it, 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 it was so strong that you never forget it. You carry that every day in your life, that, that memory. Uh, and, and how important Formula One uh, was for me. And, you know, uh, it was definitely an incredible uh, life school and what that means is yes motor racing is a great sport and uh, and it's great fun and and but when you do enter to formula 1 it, it becoming same time uh, not only the your 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 sport your your fun what you do it's becoming your work and your attitude needs to be changed to to different level to to able to get the success otherwise somebody takes your place and and uh it, it's not anymore Formula One for me. You know, when I entered the Formula One was was definitely well, wow! This is great! This is fantastic! I to be in Formula One. And and uh, yes, I I know I'm great talent. You know, and I can I can do well. But it really opened my eyes later on that way. This this is an incredible challenge to becoming good in different uh, aspects of Formula One. So it's not about just a turning a steering left or right. It is to do much more uh, than, than just having fun and driving a car. Can you remember
2: the impression a Formula One car made on you the first time you drove one? I think it was the Benetton, you went straight out and you were faster than Alessandro Nannini straight out of Formula Three. Yes,
1: that, again, that, that was a great day. It was a great day in, in Silverstone. Uh, we, we have, I had a chance to do one day testing, which was incredible. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, doing the seat fitting, first of all, I recognize uh, sitting in this, you know, my experience was Formula 3 before that, so sitting in this uh, Formula 1 car, I recognized, wow, this is so tiny, you know, the car was really tiny inside. And
2: smaller than a Formula
1: 3 car? Smaller than a Formula 3 car, wow. and and uh, I, I've recognized being it like Mm, this is not so pleasant. it's not so comfortable. To even, of course, Formula One, you you designed a special seat, you know, designed for your your body. And and but even the driving position, you weren't able to do that. How you wanted to do it was something that you know it was so tiny. But that day, you know, when I when I when the team did start the engine and and I went to the racetrack, the gearbox was. Six-speed gearbox, manual gearbox, there was no power steering. More like a F3 car. I think F3, we have five-speed five or something. And I did recognize, you know, going to the to, to, to racetrack, you know, to, even to turning and steering in Formula One, it was very responsive. You know, the car was really, really responsive. Car was very stiff. It felt, it felt great. Uh, and How then, hard was it to be quick? No, it was not very, it was not too difficult. But what was impressive was, of course, the power. You know, it didn't matter what gear you were in and you accelerating, just the torque was massive. And of course, when you put to six gear and you, you know, hang a straight and you put your foot down, you're thinking, holy shit, <laughs> you know, this, this is not going to stop. It just keeps accelerating, keeps accelerating. And in, in that time, you know, and the hangar straight in Silverstone, you had a corner called Stowe and, uh, I think it's still, still called Stowe. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> but it changed the, the profile of the it corner. It
1: changed the profile. Yeah. So at that time, the corner was nearly flat. So you just had a lift and, and you're going in and, and when, you, when you're heading there to 300 kilometers per hour, it, it was a, it was an incredible feeling to experience the grip of the tires, downforce, what the car had. So, so I felt immediately like, okay, I can I can push. I can come on a limit. The car doesn't slide on the front. It doesn't slide on the rear. I can just go faster and faster. And uh, it was not too difficult to go fast.
2: Is and, that a reflection on your talent
1: or on the car being quite easy to drive or both? It was a combination. It was both. The car had a one... Uh, uh, Balance problem, and it was not happening in high speed. The high speed, the car was really good. It was really beautiful, really fast. And, and, uh, and it was just, uh, it was happening in the low speed corners that the car had a really, really bad snap over steer.
2: I'm amazed. Snap
1: over I don't know. It's, a, it's a quite a technical No, word. no, think...
2: we can do oversteer on this show. But, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was little a little bit really, of Oppo. We love that. It ride. was
1: really, really nice. You know, you're putting car no limit under braking in a high speed, but in a low speed, medium speed corners. You brake really hard, you're coming down the gear, you turn in everything looks fine, and saddle to middle of the corner back end just went you couldn't do nothing, and that was a really uh, difficult to uh
2: i'm amazed to to, to
1: to even you have a even you have a talent driver driving it to catch that kind of problem. it was nearly impossible, so there was something of course of course never problem the driver so it was a it was some kind of it was some kind of aerodynamic or mechanical or the weight. And had the regular drivers been complaining oh, about Oh, yeah, it? absolutely. Now, I'm going
2: to tell you why I'm amazed, because yeah. I keep saying this, but I'm amazed that you can remember this day with such clarity. It was one day. I know. A long
1: well, time ago. <laughs> I, it's a long time ago, but, but to be honest, it's, it's like... A, I'll give you an example that if you were to, if you were to do a 25 years ago first time a bunch jump... You would remember that. You know, you would remember who would rope around your ankles and, and where you would be, which country, which location. And You remember when you jumped down, you could think you're going to die. That's the same thing. Formula 1 is so fast that when you, when you lose the control, the first thing in your mind comes, this is it the Mm. life is over Mm. (laughs) Uh, luckily of course in formula one tracks you have safety areas and this and that so it's a different thing but again this shock what you're getting in your your memory you never forget
2: sort of seared on on your brain but Mm. yeah now right at the top we talked about that second world championship and i just wanted to ask you how satisfying was it to win the title for a second time because there are been a lot of one hit wonders in formula one but you need real class to win two on the trot how
1: important was it for you personally to win that second one it, it was definitely important and of course i am but I, it was really important uh we had a good car so to winning a second world championship there's no excuses you know we, we were quick only who was challenged of course was my teammate was you know, giving me a hard time. We had technical issues, driving errors, but it was really important because I knew also it was important for the team, you know, to get maximum result. And like I said, we had a good car. There's no way we can come out in this year 99 when I won the second world championship, not winning it. We had the best car. Do you, you know. think you're, I do not ha- walk away there to be second, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but do you think, was your advantage bigger or less than it had been in 98? Well, 98, we, we did have, we had a mega car. We had a really amazing car. And, and the car, okay, car had some little balance issues, but, and, and little drivability issues, but they are the things what we were working on, and they weren't dramatic, you know. there was something we could live with it. But in 99, the regulations did change a little bit, and the team, same time, they were really, really uh, developing a car in a higher level, taking some risks, materials. It's a matter of calculation, you know, because the teams want to make the car light as possible. So the materials get thinner, and it brings certain risks. So the 99, car was really it was a diff, more difficult to drive so
2: why was it more difficult to drive
1: it, it was difficult to drive because the regulation changes we have, we had these tires you know we were using Bridgestone tires where we have these crew groove, grooves, yeah. groove, grooves in, a, oh, in we a, all
2: loved them didn't we
1: yeah grooves <laughs> in the tires that way because the Formula One's car was so quick they want to reduce the speed limit a uh, little bit so that was like a quick solution uh, so in in '98 we had three of those, and '99 we have four of those. The team uh, certainly did analyze that what it's going to do for the balance, but I think there was too many parameters which were affecting the performance of the car. So it, it becoming the car came definitely much more, let's call it nervous from the rear end. Racing drivers don't want that. It's okay, you have a good front end. It's, it's it's nice to have that. But if you have same time re end, which is not there, it, it's unpleasant. It takes your confidence away. Because
2: we did see in 99,
1: a couple actually of uncharacteristic
2: mistakes from you. I think it was crashing from out of the lead at Imola. Mm-hmm. And again at of Monza. Ferrari territory. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough. <yeah. laughs> I mean, um, is that what we're talking about here—the nervousness of the rear of the car—is that what caused those accidents? I,
1: I think those two accidents, actually, to be honest, they weren't uh, uh, caused because of that. I think the, the, what these two races has common, yes, both of them they were in Italy.
2: But was that a factor? Sort of just all the
1: Ferrari noise, tifosi mm. No, no. But but the, what is what is too common with these two accidents were. Both of these accidents happened when you had three stop tactics in a race. And uh, it, it was a calculation that we really need to create a certain lap time compared to our competitors to able to finish first. So that means every lap time has to be a certain window, not two tenths lower. You know, it has to be spot on all the time. And when you do that, when the driver has to perform fighting against the clock all the time, you need to take risks. Because what means that, you need to drive flat out. And when you drive flat out, you need to take risks. And when you take risks, you know, shit can happen. <laughs> and it did happen. So and, and, and we did have a discussion in Imola. We had a discussion also in, in Monza. That way, this is going to be a difficult one. If we do this kind of decision, it's going to be really, really tough. Imola was purely my mistake. I was just—I, it was no doubt about it because I was just too greedy, pushing too hard on a kerb, and you know, just going too, too fast. And Monza was—I uh, would say fifty-fifty with the team, and that—that that hurt a lot in Monza. That was really bad. It hurt certainly from a championship point of view, didn't it?
2: Because yeah, suddenly we then went to what was it, Malaysia, and. Schumacher comes back and starts yeah. being a bit of a thorn in your side. But last question about 99 is it all about that final race at Suzuka. Schumacher's on pole on the left-hand side. You're second on the inside, the dirty side of the track. Mm-hmm. You make, I think, perhaps the best start I've ever seen anyone make in yeah. Formula One and you take the lead. And then you're gone. Championship's in the bag, job done. But that whole battle with Irvine and Schumacher... Do you believe that Michael Schumacher wanted Eddie Irvine to win that world championship in '99?
1: Well, if I would have been in the same position like Michael was, I think uh, I think it would have been a great team to win. (laughs) But I don't think I would have been too volunteer to, to do this kind of help. So. Answer your question. I, I don't think Michael wanted to Eddie to, to win. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so because uh, he's been working hard with the team to develop the car and and knowing Michael, he wanted to be the number one. So it would not look good if Eddie just takes the gold medal. But it, again, it's of course difficult to know 100%. But uh, very interesting.
0: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Now let's talk a little bit about Schumacher because he, he in a way over the duration of your career was is it fair to say he was your biggest rival? Yeah, I, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. And how important was it for you and your motivation to have a rival as good as him?
1: It, it was a very motivating. It was very motivating. Motivating indeed. Uh, you you need competition. Let's say this way. Uh, was it more satisfying beating him than anyone else? Well, I, I would say uh, yes, yes, but. Uh, it, you know what I did like to Michael to compete against him because he was a very consistent very consistent to race against uh, even he was uh, quite a tough one, quite a sometimes very aggressive to race against, but he was consistent and uh, he, consistently aggressive yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the right, that's the exactly correct way. <laughs> yes. You kind of so, knew
2: what you were getting into bed with every time you went wheel to
1: wheel with him. Yeah. No. So I knew what was going on. But some drivers, you one day they had this day one day they had that, so you never knew what what was happening. So it it was not uh, it was not pleasant racing. So with Michael you knew what's going on and 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 uh, yeah, the Michael Michael was the toughest and, and the most consistent. And I I I felt that uh if we go back on big way on time, you know, we had a cool Go karting in career, me, Michael, Michael in Germany, me in Finland. Then move in different categories. Michael had a great career in Germany, I had a great career in England. Except I did one race in Germany in Formula Three when when Michael was fighting a championship and I was we went there just for you know we were guest team to race there and, and we did beat everybody in Germany. And I think it left a really bad feeling to Michael because Michael was a really rising star in Germany to be, you know, F3 winner. And and then comes this team in England and shows everybody how the things should be done. You know, the team, of course, I drove Western Racing with Dix Bennett and, and it was a great team. We had a great car. So the whole package was in great condition. So it made the look German F3 really not good at all, including the drivers. So I don't think the Michael was very happy. And we're moving on. The, of course, uh, the world championship race, what we call it in F3, in and when we had a, quite a great challenges together with Michael and me until we crashed in a, in a second heat. But Michael was able to continue and I stopped and Michael was the winner. So there's a little bit of history on a background with disturbing our, not disturbing, but it was a thing what's going on in our mind a little bit when we entered the Formula 1. So I did enter the Formula 1 a bit earlier than Michael did in a, in a team which was not, unfortunately, was not in a good form. You know, in terms of budget, in terms of the performance of the car, of course, I was also learning a lot. No question about that. Michael arriving in, uh, in Formula One, uh, one and a half years later, when I did. But he went straight over with the team, which was already not so bad, fighting in top seven position. And with the Michael's performance, uh, they really jumped up and it just turned out to be really good. And of course, I think Michael did with the team Jordan, maybe one or two races. And then Flavio Priatore took it for the Benetton
2: can i just stop you there no I you know, <laughs> we'll were you because you your your roots were different so you both did formula three you then go straight into formula one and michael is embedded in the mercedes junior team sports cars was there a little bit of you that was jealous of him having that manufacturer backing behind him or were you just totally
1: focused on your own thing no i wasn't jealous uh it's 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 a natural feeling uh what the driver is experiencing that when you've been racing somebody against you know many many years in lower categories and suddenly you move example like in formula one and then this guy is one and a half seconds quicker he said no way i you know it's no way it just suddenly changes like this so it's it's not easy to handle it but in Formula One, there's the reasons why it happens. I was keeping my feet on the ground. I knew I was still, you know, coming from the very small population from Finland. Uh, the financial package, what we can bring from Finland, is not so powerful than when you come from Germany. or the marketing reasons why to have a German driver, it's better for the team than having a Mr. Nobody from Finland. <laughs> it's just got to... You know, so it was a. There is a lot of many different aspects which are influencing to sit. There. So I was calculating my mind. This is it. You know, Mika, keep going, and you know we'll get your right position and place. When, How influential was Keke Rosberg in at this point in your career? Oh, super important and very influential. And and uh, Keke had his network. You know, and and uh, you know in in Formula One world. You cannot just uh, you just cannot sit in a motorhome and work with the engineers. You had to go around. You had to see the people. You need to talk to people. And everybody, every driver is a different personality. They need, they have different needs. So that time Keke was very important, very good for me, uh, keeping network uh, contact with the people, analyzing what was happening at the market. So that was really important. So I got opportunity to focus on my main work, to work with the team, with the engineers, and, and improving myself to be a better racing driver. And Kaké did the, the talking and the... Absolute. Could you have made it without him? Well, to be honest, no. No, no way. Well, I I think there could be a possibility to, to enter the Formula One, one way or other, but I don't... You know, it's such a complicated puzzle that you had to calculate nonstop. What is the next move? And you cannot, you cannot live in that day. You really have to see really far what's going to happen, what the people are gonna do, and the whole, what the whole Formula One what they're gonna do. It's not just uh, thinking about to go to the next race.
2: Mm. Now back to Schumacher, what? do you think were his strengths and weaknesses as a driver?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael had a very good technical uh, knowledge, uh, that was sure. And, and I think that, that was a very important uh, element. Physically very fit, very fit driver indeed. And then one thing what he did have, but it's not maybe because of him, but you know, in, in those days when I was racing... When he was racing with Ferrari, they they, they were testing in Fiorano. They they didn't have a what well, time the track is open, in a track closing. You know, they were just there flat out as much as they want the own track for Ferrari. And we had to go to Silverstone to testing with opens at ten, closes at twelve, opens at one, or was it whatever. That's really finishing interesting. at five. So you have actually. If you, have a, if you started your installation up in the morning at 10 o'clock and then you had a, some kind of failure in the engine, it takes three hours to change everything. So you lost half a day. And you really felt at the
2: time that that, oh my that God. gave them a massive advantage.
1: Oh, massive. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we would have run from 8 o'clock until 8 o'clock in the evening, I
2: remember, didn't Ron try and buy Lyddon Hill, yeah, which is a little I, racetrack
1: I, in the southeast of England? Yeah, absolutely. For been, that
2: reason, he wanted his own Fiorano. Absolutely. It
1: would have made a massive difference in the development uh, of the car itself, the drivers, uh, including mechanics, practicing the real for the tyre changes or refueling, whatever, you know, it would have made a massive difference. I think it would have brought also the drivers, the, the team closer you know, the, the mechanics closer. Everything would improve through that. So that was the, one of the things what Michael had a big advantage. What about Michael's weaknesses? What did you pinpoint?
2: Because I'm sure when you're racing against a guy, you, you, you have to weigh up in your mind, don't you, what their strengths and their weaknesses are. You've listed the strengths. What mm. do you think were his weaknesses?
1: Well, he did, he did not have too many weaknesses, to be honest. Uh, uh, but uh, how would I say he's got a long pause now I try to think the weaknesses <laughs> yeah. there was not too there was not too there was he not won too. 91 Grand Prix, didn't he and you know I, I think Michael knew that he, he's quick and, and he he knew what he was doing but I think Michael knew same time I'm fast and I know that and I think Michael saw when he saw me that way Mika thinks he's quicker than me so it was a little bit psychological game there but I think uh, Michael showed a lot of confidence outside, but I don't think inside he, he confidence was lacking quite often. And uh, you can you can see that. Well, I, I saw that when it's happening, and and that was the time attack. Anyway, I mean, I have an enormous respect of of the way he was working on with the team and developing a car together and. And able to achieve what they did. It was incredible. But he didn't do alone that, you know, he did he had a great team around him. But he I felt he has a lack of confidence, you know. But but difficult to say when you're not driving on a racetrack, I think he did some desperate moves sometimes. I I, I felt, you know, when, when you are racing out there and you clearly you are slower than somebody else you don't do this kind of maneuvers you know when you are really slower because it's it's ridiculous so i i felt that was that was something to do that way you don't the season is long and there's a lot of races so one race not gonna end of the day is not gonna change the whole world were you surprised
2: by adelaide 94 when he crashed with Damon Hill or Hereth 97, the race that you went on to win, actually, but when he crashed with Jack, Were you surprised by those maneuvers?
1: No, not at all. No, it was the last race. It was a, about the a championship, so I, I understand that. I, I think, easy to say, I would do the same. But uh, I would not, <laughs> at this level... Uh, I would not do that uh in in formula one it it would it would be definitely too obvious uh to do something like you can play some tricks and try everything in this world, but you don't crash into somebody i think that's that's too much i mean you can do some naughty stuff out there on on you know do something which is not so not so following the rule book you know but Brain testing, that kind of thing. No, yeah. I would not even do that because that's dangerous. That's okay. basically crashing. What do you, what but, do you mean? What's well, What's your all...
2: box of tricks? What well,
1: you... <laughs> you can always you can always do some tricks because some places you just simply cannot overtake. You know, so you can you can do you can do driving with only seventy well, percent and just just tease the driver behind that way they will lose their nerves. You know, like what Michael did for me in 1999 in. In Malaysia, I think he did, you know, so, so you, can, you can do that quite easily. It doesn't, it's not shown on a television, but it's really nasty for a racing driver to perform behind a driver like that. So Michael couldn't do that. And I, I, if I would have been in the same position, I would have done the same thing. But Damon, of course, was different because there are different positions in, in a race. But uh, Do you think you were quicker than him? Of course. Of course, I mean that's no. no of course, that's where you had to think about it. I think we had a little bit different driving technique. I think we had a little bit different driving technique, and that was, I think that Michael was technically very good in low speed, and and I felt I was technically maybe a bit better in high speed. But nevertheless, it it was okay. You knew him for so long.
2: You know, mm-hmm. you, as you as we've already discussed, you you raced each other in the junior formulas, then all the way through Formula One. Did you have much of a relationship off track?
1: Mm, I, I we we did try to hang around, uh, we we tried to be friends, uh, but it just didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out, I you. Just because uh, the rivalry was too intense, or, it, or the rivalry maybe too intense, or. Something, something was just didn't, something didn't match, you know.
2: (laughs) When you retired, did that change anything?
1: Well, when I did retire, Michael did continue racing, uh, and uh, it it really didn't change. Uh, It's really sad, in know one sense, Uh, but it's okay. There was still certain respect, inner respect that uh, we knew each other. Our abilities of motor racing and Michael was taking very seriously his, his, his driving, his work, life it's normal. And I have a different way of working. And uh, I think that maybe didn't fit to his way of looking at things and, and vice versa. Because if you look at the Formula One and even today is harder, you know, it, it's so many Grand Prix. you know, it's a tough environment. It's a month longer now, I guess, from when you were racing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's really amazingly. Uh, it's, it's very impressive to see the, the people to able to, to do this kind of challenge to, to travel around the world. And it's not only traveling around the world, but it's also doing performance physically at the Grand Prix to, to perform, you know, to have certain rules what you have to follow. One last thought on Michael Spa
2: 2000 you've talked about it a lot mm. was that in some way a definitive moment in your relationship in that he did the dirty on you the lap before try to put you on the grass going up to Les Combes, you then get him the next lap was that in some way definitive in your mind was there, was there some unspoken message that that maneuver spoke to michael somehow
1: well we we had a we had a little bit similar incident in in a similar racing uh, situation in Macau 1990 when we were racing Formula 3 and and I knew the Michael's way of of not able to if you're behind the Michael not you know he has certain way of protecting his position and and the Spa he was doing the same thing so so uh It's very, it's it's it was an incredible situation. I mean, the racing, uh, when you go 300 kilometers per hour and you're really following somebody and you know you're much quicker and you're ready to overtake, and front of somebody just pulls front of you, and option is to go on a cross, you know, in 300 kilometers per hour. If you go 300 kilometers per hour in Formula One on a cross, you will crash for sure. I'm sure listeners and, and, and you know, you have experience when you're driving your road car and suddenly somebody pulls in front of you and you go like, oh my God, what that person is doing, you know? So imagine a Formula 1 car in this situation when you go 300 kilometers per hour and somebody does that. It's something what you, and what, what, what I understand that way, it can happen accidentally that way. You don't look in your mirrors. But when it happens, you know, three, four times and a person knows exactly what he's doing, it can be quite annoying. And that speed, 300 kilometers, if you, if you crash into somebody in that speed, you know it's going to be a mess up, mega accident. And, and to me, avoiding this kind of situation, going across, I couldn't have a mega accident. So Michael was pretty tough with that. So uh, fortunately, uh, I was able to then, luckily, overtake him because there was a slow car in front of us who was driving middle of the middle of the race So it gave me the opportunity to overtake. Do you think you would have got past him without Zonta? I, I think so. I think so. I, I think so. I, I think I would have forced the situation that way. I would have do it. Just you know, I, I think it would have happened. But this this definitely gave me a really good chance to do that without making a mega risk there's that wonderful
2: bit of footage after the race where you look like you're lecturing Michael you, you've got your hands up like I'm doing now sort of I think what were you talking about were you talking about that specific
1: maneuver or were you telling him he was a naughty boy or it was exactly explaining that way you know in this bit you know you can't you cannot play the games like this because he's fighting against a double world champion he himself is a world champion been there, done that, race for many years. Uh, Michael had a big accident in his career. I had a big accident in his career. So I think there has to be a certain respect, you know. We are fighting there on a racetrack. We are going to go wheel to wheel and very hard. But the really going in that speed and, and the pushing and doing things like that, it's, it's not acceptable. I'm not. But again, I mean, of course. Me to start jumping up and down to go to talk to team managers, going to clock at the course, making a protest to talk about that. I know it's a waste of time. It's no waste of time. He, Michael had his way of working and his style of thriving, but I needed to have my word, him to understand I'm aware of what's going on. I'm not just walking away and ignoring what he's doing. I let him know that way I'm aware But just want to say something, of course, you know, changing a tiny bit of subject. Of course, I understand what position Michael is today. Of course, it's very, very hard. And talk about the past, what we experienced, what we raised. Of course, uh, it's in a very close to my memory. There's a positive, there's negative. But both of us, I think we did an unbelievable career and great successes. So now to talk to you about Michael, about his naughty driving style sometimes it's not so easy to talk about of course you know because i don't want to talk bad about things about him which happened in the past in the history so i think the listeners will understand that way i'm not talking behind his back and i do understand his position so i hope he will get stronger in his position where he is now yes I'm sure everyone listening
2: completely agrees with you, Mika. But let's talk about Senna then. Shall we go on to another of your great rivals? Um, In fact, let's wind the clock back. So you 1992, your last season at Lotus, there was talk of you joining Williams for 93 instead of Damon Hill. And what did Ron Dennis, the boss of McLaren, say to you or to Keke, whoever it was, to convince you to go the
1: McLaren route and not the Williams route? This, yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't very difficult to, to make a decision. There was quite a, I was in a fantastic situation because we did, we did get a lot of offers from different companies, different teams to join because they saw my ability, my, my performance on a racetrack. They said, you know, we want this guy. So there was quite a few teams. And uh, Williams was one of them. McLaren, what other teams there were? Ligier was one of them. Did Ferrari come knocking at that time? I. This was the good, that's a good one. I think they, I think that time they were, the seats were full. I think the Ferrari was only missing from there, if I remember correct. So why McLaren? Why McLaren, you ask? Uh, it was interesting. I was in Austria, I was in Kekes, KK Rosberg's chalet over there. That time, it was that was before Christmas, I think, uh, in 92. Kekes fax machine was running flat out. The paper was coming out different different options and and different different uh, offers. And it was a beautiful situation, you know. I was I was relaxed. I was really chill out and said <laughs> This is looking good, and of course, Keke was very stressed up. He had his glass of whiskey and, and uh, <laughs> offering for me also. I said, "No, no, no, it's, it's, I'm fine at the moment." And uh, it was a big pressure for Keke, but for me it was easier. And, and the why pressure for well, I didn't know how to talk about why pressure for Keke, but you know, this is this is a serious decision. I think m- many people. would, think about ah maybe it was because the money and of course that has an important part of the the business but for me I had a confidence on on McLaren uh, because what I experienced in my first years in in Formula 1 91 92 looking the drivers who raced before with Williams drivers who raced in 91 92 about the talks what was going on, how happy they were with the team, Williams. And, and I did recognize that there is differences. There is differences, how the team is run, how the team operates, and what are the priorities. And I, I felt that uh, the driver, the team, will get uh, full respect from the team. I mean, the team. But I mean team, it means the whole people who are working at the, at the team McLaren example. They all get the maximum uh, respect. And the uh, driver is a star, but the driver is same time a team player. So we all win together. And I got the feeling a little bit in, in, in that time that uh, the drivers, they are the drivers for Williams.
2: Patrick Head used to call them light bulbs, didn't he? You could take one out and put another one in.
1: I think that's what it was. That got the impression I got. I said, do I have a future with something like this? Except,
2: Mika, you... Surely Keke, of all people, would have seen that Williams had the best car in 92. It looked as if they were going to have the best car in 93. McLaren were changing engines Mm -hmm. from Honda to Mm -hmm. Ford. In terms of performance... Williams looked like they were locked on for another good year whereas there was a bit of uncertainty about McLaren
1: wasn't there yeah absolutely but I I I did say to Keke that way I want to go to I want to go to McLaren and uh, I think Keke was quite surprised I don't think he was so he did ask me you know reasons why you want to do that why you want to go there and I did explain the exactly same thing that you know that's what I feel. And, and I feel that in McLaren days, uh, it's a very, very strong history. And the drivers are treated differently, you know. And, and, uh, and I think it's very important. The driver needs massive confidence. You know, I think the racing drivers are quite a complex people. I think they're a bit spoiled. <laughs> but, they, but they do need a great confidence push all the time it's not a question about they need to for their ego, but they need the confidence boost because they, they need to do some extreme performance on a racetrack and they need to just go really, really incredible results. So so I think the McLaren keeps this kind of position. How much did you want to test yourself against Senna? I, I didn't have a problem with that. I, I, to me to you know when when I did start working with McLaren and, and we start doing a test program and I, I was very confident to go and and to be a winner and I, I didn't have a I didn't have a I don't think I had a, any uh, fear or thinking that he, he would be quicker I did have no doubt I, of course I couldn't be faster than him and uh, it, it was normal I think it was just that's a way of you have to think you know and it's not only thinking it's a it's a inner confidence because in the day we all humans you know and and uh, you know humans make mistakes humans can improve you can learn and I thought I can always be better than him
2: so how frustrating were those early months of 93 when Senna was in one car but Michael Andretti was in another and he was having quite a scrappy start wasn't he, he was a lot of crashing wasn't quite as quick as it and were you
1: constantly pestering ron dennis saying come on put me in the car put me in the car or how how did it work it it was frustrating no doubt about it and and of course it, when when the reality came the truth came that way i become a test driver it was a big shock it was a really big shock and and uh, it was not in my agenda. I was really confident that uh, I will go to racing and, and the team will trust my abilities and, and uh, the team knows how quick I am. So I don't have a problem with that. And, and of course, when, it went, when the Arton decided to come back, it was a shock. So you signed for McLaren thinking it was going to be you and Andretti? I signed uh, that there's a possibility to Arton decide to come back. I I fully understand, it. I had a fully understanding that way. If the Ayrton decide to come back, I'm going to be a test driver. So I knew that. But I took that risk that there's well, no way he's going to come back. You know, there's no way. Because he was, the words, what he was saying, what I saw that I said, no way. It, he's He's too angry for the team. He's not, how you can manage to work with the team the way you, behave towards them. You know, you cannot build a relationship with them again suddenly to say everything's fantastic. Because it's not just the one person in charge in a in a racing team. There's a many, many individuals who are making decisions and so I I thought he's, he's no no way gonna come back. And he did. God damn it <laughs> yeah. Can you remember the first test day you did with him? Oh yeah.
2: Oh very well And the impression he, he made on you and sitting next to him in the debrief talking about the car
1: oh yeah I remember many of the test sessions what we did in, in, I think we were in Pembry we were in uh, Silverstone and uh, yeah I, I, it, it was quite interesting uh, it's a, I don't think he was very keen to come for testing first of all he was not very interested yeah he was not very prepared it was quite in my opinion quite disip- well not disappointing but I understood that way you know if you want Team to win and the car to be fast, you have to work hard. You cannot just come there like uh, things are silver plate and just go for it. Okay, he was three times world champion, you know. So he's done his work. He has done his work. So, of course, I was quite naive in that side and looking at, come on, he should be working here every day to make the car quicker and flying back to Brazil. But the looking at his work at the test, yeah... He jumped in a car which is set up nicely, has a nice design, and guys has done a hell of work back in the factory. So he came and did the testing and, and that's it.
2: Were you in awe of him in any way? Was he the sort of guy when you were coming up through the junior formulas that you looked up to? Was if you had a, a racing driver on your wall, on your bedroom wall as a kid, was it Senna kind of you know, was it quite
1: surreal in a way? No, not not really. No, not really. No, I, I, it's really weird. I think it's my personality, but I, I don't think, I think there's a, I judge the people in their personalities and how they behave, how they talk, how they respect the other people. I don't think, I don't look at people how great they are on a racetrack and what results they do. So, of course, I think great, you don't know, great races, but that doesn't make the human being to be a better person. So I justify people and I, 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 I respect the people not because the result but who they are. So I didn't I didn't have too much uh, uh, when I was younger. It's looking at the artist. He's, he's, he's the guy who is the the guy who I want to be when I get in in Formula One or to getting higher formulas. So fast forward to Estoril Portuguese
2: Grand Prix. You've got the nod. You're in the car instead of
1: Andretti. How confident were you going into that race weekend? Okay, it, it, was, not a, it, was, not, it was quite an interesting one. You know, to be a test drive a whole year, so come back to racing, you know, it's, it's, a quite a, it's not going to be an easy one. And to become racing driver for McLaren, you will get a lot of media attention. Uh, your agenda during a weekend is, is busier than ever. I mean, it was busy with the Lotus, but McLaren, it was even busier. Your words, what you were using, were definitely more carefully analyzed. Is it media? Is it with the team when you're on race weekend? And uh, of course, in a race weekend, we had different engineers, what we had in a test team. Because that time, McLaren had a separate test team, well, the test team and the race team. So there were separate people. It's like two teams. One was testing, one was racing. So going to Portugal for the first Grand Prix, I had a different mechanics. I had a different engineer. So it was quite a few different new people, new elements, what I had to face. And uh, so what I tried to do, I purposely disconnected myself in terms of not thinking about it. Oh, I have new people here. So I had to start introducing myself, having a little chat, who you are, what I do, and this and that. It was no time for that. So I had to go straight to business, and I focused only, on going to Portugal, to kick Arton's ass, to go quicker than him. So that was my goal. I knew the car was not quick enough to beat Williams, because they were faster. Uh, but I thought, that's it. I, that's the only thing what I had to do, is to go faster than him. And you did, and it happened. And it happened. <laughs> How good it, was your lap? It was good. Yeah, it, it was a very, it was very good lap. Uh, I don't think I could go any quicker than that. I mean, technically, car was working fine, and uh, it was a fantastic lap. Uh, so, so uh, I thought that it's no, it it again, it's not possible to Arton can go quicker than that. And I, I felt also Arton was not. Also, I think psychologically he was not 100% uh, there because I think his expectations for the start of the seasons were high. That's why he decided to go to McLaren in '93. So then he realized during a year that Williams is quicker, they're doing a better job. I think he started losing his, not motivation, but, but not there. So when I'm jumping behind the steering and going quicker, I think he woke up and said, oh my God, you know this is not good. It's not good for me. Mm, mm. What did he say to you? Well, uh, he was he was not he, he was not shocked. He was not disappointed.
2: Was he generous in terms of his congratulations? Well, he
1: was just simply asking, "What, what did you do? How, how did you do that?" And he was serious about it. And and uh, well, I could have started explaining to him about this. I was using this kind of technique for the driving and this and that, but I didn't want to go into that. I just said, "You know something something which was nothing to do with the racing, though. So I think it upsetted him in a really big way. You know, I think it upset him because he thought he thought, "What is this girl about? Why it doesn't tell me?" And I think he took me wrong way, straight away, that way I don't tell him the truth, how I'm performing out there. And that was not my intention, of course, it was just lighting it up. you know this is you know, but the guy who is three times world champion, and the young guys come in there kick his ass in a qualification, of course, for him, it was not the time to joke. it was him time to start working, and for me, it was just you know that's you know this is this is this is normal for me, so it was not he was he was not very happy about it so it was it was really difficult and i and i I saw so impression of the team you know when the I wasn't there, and I was looking at the team members, the mechanics, the engineers, they had a little smile in their face, and they were really happy because, like I said earlier, you know the team worked so hard, they worked so hard, you know at that time there was no regulation that way the mechanics had to stop working a certain time they can start certain time working that time was 24 7 so they were working harder than ever and you know if there's the driver who complains non-stop doesn't do testing so i think they were pretty happy the mechanics see like okay now you got the lesson here. you know you don't get anything free <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was the moment that you really arrived in Formula 1 as a driver? It certainly made a Formula 1 people to realise, like, yeah, this guy is quick. He has a talent and and he can he can do great things, you know. Do you think, had Ayrton already committed to Williams at that point for the following year? I don't know in real, but uh, normally you know, t- t- Around you start, that time, you start it, discussions yeah. and, and planning for the future. You talk about the smiles
2: on the faces of the management and the engineers mm. and Ron Dennis in particular. There must have been a sense of relief that we've got a guy who can replace Ayrton Senna right here in our car. There must have been that feeling as well.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, because... Th- the team had a very good data and record of my testing, what I have done in, in that, that year. They knew how quick I am. And that they knew how committed I am for the team. And, and, and they, they knew we can do good things together. But I think, of course, this kind of in esteril in 93 confirms the whole team. Everybody back in the factory, everybody said, wow, we, we have a good driver in the team now. And and Ron has made a good decision to take me to the team. Can you talk a little bit about Ron and what he did for your career? Well, for me, basically, you know, I think he gave... Uh, well, he, he knew what he was doing. He did employ somebody. He did employ a good racing driver. Uh, I think, he, you know, he knew that way I'm a loyal uh, person. And... Uh, I am talent and, and I have a room to develop. I'm ready to learn <laughs> and same time quite a neutral uh you know coming from Finland and and I think it was important for, for Ron also that uh, uh that you know uh, he did not uh, to have a guy who was a superstar, just a normal guy. And I think that worked fantastically for the team to with the mechanics and with engineers, and uh, I think that was the one of the good things. And and uh, and for Ron, for Ron, of course, uh, I think Ron gave me a lot of time to learn from mistakes. If you if you have a team, and you want the team to be successful in Formula One, you know you need to make a you have to make a really many years planning ahead. Is it one year or is it two or five or ten years? I mean, if I would go to Formula One now to make a team, I would say minimum ten years. You know, I would make a plan that way. One day it's going to work out. It's going to be a one world championship, but it's going to work out, but it's going to take ten years, and it's going to be bloody expensive. <laughs> uh, but, but but that's and and to, and to, and, to, and the wrong gave a good chance for me to develop, continue to be fast, and uh, to have a vision that the machine has to be right, you know. The engine has to be right, the chassis has to be right, the people has to be right, and then we can win. Changing the driver for non-stop for the team, you're just messing up everything. Because the driver is one of the key elements who brings the stability in the team. It's like anything in the in Formula One, if you keep changing engine, keep changing chassis, the designers, the mechanics you never found the harmony to get a, and, and you never get the success. So, so to get everything best, you know, it requires a lot of time, a lot of planning and a lot of money.
2: Did you ever lose faith in McLaren? Because it took you, what was it, 96 races to win a Grand Prix. That first race at Estoril we've discussed was a Ford engine. You then go to Peugeot the next year. Then it's Mercedes the year after that. So there's a lot of change did you ever question what was going on in a
1: negative way? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it was a lot of discussion to me to, to understand why this person with Ron. Why, why this person? Why, why, God damn it, employing somebody like that. You know, they think they know what they do, but they don't know nothing, you know. And uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to, to see it, uh, the whole concept why things are happening. And take it wrong to walk and say, look at those, look at those, you know, how they work and what they have. And, and to, to, to be in a team manager's or team owner or team manager's position is such a hard position. Uh, because you really have to see such a wide picture when happening something and what's happening something. And when you, are, when you are communicating with racing drivers, they want everything straight away. You know, but it's not. Sometimes it's not possible. You have to wait one or two years. So I had moments in my career with McLaren, thinking about, oh my God, what we are doing? This, this, this is not good. So, only thing what you can tell yourself that way: patient. You know, believe the team and and look back down in a history what they have done. It will come. It the re, history will repeat itself. It's gonna take some time, and just. Keep working. When did you feel
2: it was starting to come together? Was it the start of ninety seven or do
1: we talk about ninety six? It it certainly came together when we when we had a yeah when we had a Mercedes engine. That was an important element for the team, my opinion. And it was a long term agreement so consistency came there, confidence then came, no any doubts in the air. So we had a, a confidence that, you know, it's a long term and uh, Mercedes has a certain reputation and they want to spend money. They want to win. So everybody wants to win. So then there's a success. But if there's just like we want to be in Formula One, it's not good enough. So that was the that was important part. We got a new partner, Resma, to be our main sponsor. Ah, a, that was one
2: of the highlights. You with the Spice Girls, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. A, <laughs> I
1: remember the launch. I was that was there. so funny. That was so funny. That was so much fun. Uh, that, that was a good one. So, Rems, yeah. that was important to have a new color for the team, to start the new, new era for the partnership with, uh, with the marketing side. Uh, that was 97, wasn't it? So, mm-hmm. it's almost as if... And then you won your first race, and then
2: yeah, championships
1: come, and yeah. Okay. And, of course, the important element was David... Uh, David Kulthard, which was a very fast driver, and uh, believing himself so much that he is the best in the world, you know. And and uh, it was great to be his teammate because he woke me up, you know, to fight even harder. And and I had challenges to fight against him because it was just after my accident, because '95 had a really big accident, and and David, David came to my teammate. If I remember, '96. You know, so 95 had an accident. And four months later, we had, a, well, five months later, we are in the first Grand Prix. And the five months before that Grand Prix, I had a cracked skull in a, in a hospital in a coma. So then having a teammate who was a young guy, ready for winning, star of the Formula One, raced already with Williams. So it was really difficult to have driver next to me who had a quality like he had. To beat him was really really difficult. So all those Mercedes, the new partner, then uh, David Coulthard. So that was the time when I start seeing that. When now we are no right. Now we start moving right directions. You say that David was the perfect teammate, but I mean I remember Did I say perfect.
2: Well, I don't know. That was probably I my said, way. Good, no good.
1: <laughs> oh my sorry, God. sorry, sorry. You didn't say
2: perfect. <laughs> but but all I, I've just got this image in my head. Sorry, and it's slightly <laughs> skewing my thoughts, which is. Was it Austria '99 when the championships at a crucial point and David crashed into you at turn two? I seem to remember. That is correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. That is that is correct.
2: So it wasn't always.
1: Easy no, 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 with no. It. There was definitely no. There was no always a good. We we didn't have very good start with David and me. in My opinion. Yeah, David, very difficult start. Why? I. Okay, we talked about 95 and then it comes to season 96. So I'm racing with the McLaren already for 93, 94, 95 and fourth year coming with McLaren and then come this young guy and, you know, Scottish guy and coming there that way I'm, gonna, I'm the number one. So it's like a, it was a difficult situation. And of course, coming from that accident, made it made a situation very difficult to to really to go for it. To really to go to full, full, full speed and, and to do performance. So, so that was quite a difficult with David. David was quite a, and I, I saw in David very first time when I see him. He, he was. He, he had it very difficult to trust me. And I, I felt very uncomfortable. You know when you have somebody who doesn't trust you it's a quite unpleasant feeling. Why do you think he didn't trust you? I don't know. I never asked him. <laughs> Even today, I never asked him. Do you think, but, uh, same, same it reason, it said Ayrton be. was a little... It could be, it could be my, my uh, thinking, but it, it was quite a challenge to me to see, because to make the team forward, we had to work together, we had to trust each other. And, and uh, it, it could be also, to be honest, maybe language issue what what was uh, making attention there, you know. Maybe I didn't understand so well the Scottish jokes and he didn't understand the Finnish jokes. <laughs> so there was something that didn't work out well. But, but we had incidents uh, like in 90, was it already 96 or 97, we had an accident in Estoril in a race. And we were racing position eight or nine or something, you know, not even, on the points. And then accident in, in Austria. So it was a difficult... Austria was a very difficult one uh, afterwards, after race, to see what, what we, how we're going to solve this. I mean, inside, in, internally, in a team, we, one way or other, we can solve this, but nobody don't give the points back. You know, we can't, this, what is gone, is gone. And what is gone, is gone because of somebody's mistake. And, and this time was David's who did the mistake. And, and we are positioned to win first and second. So what is the purpose of this kind of mistake? So it was very hard to understand that uh, why. But again, you cannot change that. What has happened has happened. It was difficult at the race that, well, are you going to go crazy front to everybody and screaming about how silly teammate you have or... Or is it David to found all the possible excuses why this happened and, and the team is inside maybe start thinking about now these two our fantastic drivers start fighting each other. And so I think it was uh, Ron Dennis and, and Norbert Haug who were able to find solution and calming us down and, and founding a harmony again and, and uh, just to just to not forgetting it but just to Think about again the future that way. Let's not. It's not. It's not going to change anything. But let's not make sure this is not going to happen second time.
2: And I don't think it did.
1: No, I did no. not. No. <laughs> well, after after no, the Austria, no.
2: Mika, you've made a couple of references to Adelaide ninety five, your crash. What can you
1: remember from the accident itself? Well, it, it. Of of course, it is a long time ago already. But I, I do. I do remember that day and uh performance is what we did i do remember the accident uh, itself but uh, the memory of what i have is that definitely when i was sitting in a car and not not able to move and i i realized i, I realized that shit i could move my legs and i cannot i cannot get out of the car and i thought that's it i've i felt that i'm that's it i'm in the shit uh, then I just see next thing I see the guy come in front of me and and uh, and and uh, I, I I said to myself just now just just relax just don't do nothing because it's nothing what I can do. So then they just put the I don't know what to call it. Uh,
2: Is it a tracheotomy? Was it? Then? Yeah. Oh. So and
1: they, they put me. So st- you were conscious? Is that what you're saying? I was I was little wild I was little wild until of course when they put the hole in you.
2: But initially you were so. So you remember that it was a left rear
1: yeah infle- inf- puncher, wasn't it yeah exactly so yeah mm. so, so of course 10 days of things you know when you're waking up from the hospital remember the situation and, and uh, what happened in the hospital which was really really horrible things uh, it's like in a horror movie I, I tell you it, it, everything just is grey and dark so uh, that's what was that all about at all time? Even, even you, I had a good people around me, you know, it still, it is such a horrible, gray, dark time in my life. I think when, when you do survive from that, you, you come out of the hospital, you can start walking on the street, you do thank the people who were supporting you and taking care of you that horrible time. Even then, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible experience. How long did it take you to get over it? I don't
2: think... Do you ever get over something
1: like no, that? No, I don't think... You don't ever get over it. Uh, in, in racing life, you know, you have to... I, I, I wanted to go back to racing after time. So, so you, you ignore it. You, don't, you stop thinking about it. You just have to go for your, your, your racing performance. But you, you, never, you never get over it. You know, you can talk to any to anybody in this world and uh, try to get over it, and but you cannot you cannot escape what that what you gone through. You have to live with it. You have to to work harder to be healthy and better person to cope this kind of shit. What you gone through, you know. Otherwise, you just you go deeper. You know, you you. You start feeling pity for yourself, and and I don't think that's going to take you far in your life. So it, it is a big challenge to, to go through that. But like I said, there was a great great people to to help you, and and uh, yeah. Did you ever question whether you wanted to continue as a racing driver? Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely. It, it in the first place, it was not even didn't come to my mind because it was not physically even possible to do anything in life. You know, are you able to live normal life? You know, you never knew that. Then when you start getting a bit stronger, uh, it was a moment when uh, came the discussion that way. hopefully soon I can fly back to Europe from Australia and to go to hospital in Europe. But first, before I can even fly, they had to put me in this pressurizing tank, I don't know what to call it in English, the kind of same pressure, what you have in airplanes or in a submarines, you know. I have to go to Navy, they put me in this tank. Just to see how the pressure would affect you. Exactly. You know, so... So
2: how, how long were you in Adelaide after the
1: accident? If I would say nearly two months, something like that. Right, okay. So...
2: So... That includes Christmas,
1: then I suppose.
2: Were you there Christmas? 24? I think
1: after Christmas. I think I, uh, before yeah. Christmas. I think I got it. Something like that.
2: You must. Did you come back with an Australian accent? You were there for so long.
1: Oh my God! Yeah, but the, I, it was a but hey, really. I mean, yeah, yeah. I had a really fantastic uh, to, to healthcare in, in there. What what they gave me. But then I came back to England. I was there in the hospital in Sid Watkin's Hospital in, in London. Also, uh, really difficult time. But but the, thinking about racing driving driving racing car i mean lost lost i was already 68 kilos when i was racing so i lost a lot of weight so i was such a skeleton so skinny and doctors you know when when i was not able to walk and you know they, they even didn't allow me to go do any exercise so i thought oh, if i you know, of course, if you want to go back to sport, racing, you know, you cannot do any exercise. How are you going to manage to do that? So it was very difficult. Uh, coming back to Monaco then finally from England and to be at home in Monaco, I was, I was sitting in the terrace and I was thinking the time will come when I will get the phone call that way if I want to continue. It's a horrible feeling. I mean great feeling because the team, the management, nobody didn't pressurize me, make I give you an answer today. No, they gave me time the last minute to make my decision. You know, so it was it was a horrible time. So it was a gradual process,
2: the return. It wasn't you didn't like wake up one morning and go No.
1: I was getting stronger in I would say end of ninety seven when I was started getting physically back to really shape. Talking until the end of ninety Yeah. seven, yes. two years. Yeah, so it took a long time. How ner- how nervous were you
2: before testing for the first time after the accident? It was at Paul Ricard, wasn't it?
1: It was at Paul Ricard, but I, I knew the track is easy. I knew, knew the track is easy to drive. And so I was, when I went there, I, I know I'm going to go flat out. I didn't have no fear. I, I didn't have no doubt if, I didn't think about if I lost my driving performance or or talent or something, I didn't, you know, I, I knew I was going to go flat out. It was more about uh, fear that what the mechanics are going to say, because I, I did look like, a, you know, Adam's family, you know, a mm-hmm. little bit like a monster, you know. You know, the <laughs> you know because they shaved the hair from the, <laughs> I mean, Adam's family, it's a movie, isn't it? Something like that, you know. So they had, to, you know, they shave the hair from other side, and... Uh, of course, the other side of the face because it was paralyzed. So it didn't work properly. So I, I didn't look too normal. So going to the test, I was wondering what the mechanics going to see. They have seen me for all my, you know, gradually my career, 93, 94. And then, so I wonder what they're going to say when they're going to see me. Because it was a serious moment. Imagine, you know, the, you know Christmas is getting, you know, to, no, this was in, it was in January, I think, yeah. So, you know, the mechanics are thinking, what, what, what's going to happen? You know, I was worried about when they're going to see me. They're going to they're they're get shocked. I mean, of course, they had, a, they had a great sense of humor. You know, of course they have. They're good lads. They're good guys. And, but I, when, I, when I did arrive at the barricade and I walked in the car, so I was like, shit, you know, I should be, you know, normally I come there with full confidence, full power, full energy. Smile in my face, okay, guys. Let's let's work hard. Let's gonna do well and let's find a solution for the problems. But now this was the this was the case when I have to come to garage and and I, I do I don't look so good. I don't look so well. So the mechanics they they cannot just start screaming. Yeah, great, you are back, fantastic. No, 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 no. They saw that way this guy has gone through to hell. What did they say? Well. Many of them were happy I'm back, I'm okay. Uh, but, you know, the visual look was already uh, something that way. It was a bit, a bit not so what they used to it, you know, because I'm so careful with my hair always and everything. And so the other side is shaved oh, off. All those film star looks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it was a bit difficult. Yeah. But they were okay. And and when I did jump in a car, I, I was very confident, you know, it's going to be good. It's going to be and good. And did it all come back immediately? Absolutely. It's it was really like right. you hadn't been away. Absolutely. I mean, I did so much driving with McLaren to racing and testing that it was just I knew the car, I mean, everything. Did everything. your attitude to safety change after that? <sighs> not so much. Surprisingly. Not so much. Don't ask me why. I was focusing the team and Yeah, uh, not so much. I didn't start going to FIA and say, you have to change everything now. Not change everything now, but change that, change that corner. And, you know, know, I think. uh, Equally,
2: when Senna and Ratzenberger were
1: killed, how did that affect you? Well, it's, of course, it's, you know, it, 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 what do you mean, how did it affect me? Just
2: the impact of their, was it a wake-up call for you as a racing driver? Because there had been what twelve years prior to that, there hadn't. been No, a I mean,
1: I knew the motor. I knew that we're in the motor racing, and before me, before you know, you know, there has been accidents. Motor racing is dangerous. So every driver who goes in the sport knows there is a risk. There is no way somebody's crying afterwards that you know something happened. Oh my God! Hey, come on, guys! You know if you. If you go to this port and you go 200 miles per hour, you know you crash on a wall, there's a very big chance you're going to die. So if that happens, it's no point to... (laughs) This sounds horrible, what I'm telling, but it's a fact. It's a choice what we do for the life. We can do other things than if we don't... We have to recognize the reality. Uh, But yeah, when the great champion, Ayrton Rotzenberger, dies like that, it is a shock. In the same weekend, you know, same, of course, same racetrack. So it is a shock. It's terrifying, but it's like when I had my accident in '95. Shall so I come back to, you know, back to Europe and go to FI and say, you know, hey, you know, really, are you really designing this kind of racetracks and racing cars that way I get hurt? They can then look at me and say, what are you talking about? When you do sign your super license, you know the risks. You, when you sign the contract with the teams, tire manufacturers, you sign your name, you know exactly what are the risks. So there's no point afterwards going there to complaining that something happens. You know your risks. So it's it's a horrible thing, but that's the, that's the reality. Luckily, the things are better today, and, and the teams are more aware to FIA working very hard for the safety. The companies who are involved in in Formula One, motor racing, even it's dangerous. You know, we cannot lose any lives. You know, nobody does want to be a partner in Formula One if FIA or the drivers and teams don't care about the safety. So something has to be done, and, and so many good things have been happening with the safety. But there is always, always something can happen because we are in vault with the high-speed machine, Formula One. So, Mika, when you look back at it all, when do you think
2: you were at your peak? What was your best season from a driving point of view?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. I I think I feel like uh, 95, the year when I had my accident, I started getting very strong, getting very strong physically, very strong mentally, starting really to understand the philosophy of, of what's happening here getting very strong position in the team. It was a good thing the accident happened that time because I was so strong. But yeah, I then I would say uh, when we come into year, for sure, 97, 98, you know, psychological development, able to focus, concentrate, able to handle the pressure, communicate with a lot of people, you know, all that elements develop in a very good way. So we're talking about has to be say 98, 99, ninety nine, two thousand.
2: Ninety eight. You won eight races, didn't you? So,
1: yeah, certainly a lot
2: of champagne spraying.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, it it could have been better, but it was enough.
2: <laughs> it was
1: definitely <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah.
2: What about? I mean, like What about a best race? You won twenty races. I mean, is there one that stands out?
1: more than any other i, I think that, that, again i think that for sure monaco is always a, you know the greatest greatest victory what i ever done in my career well, it was unbelievable uh victory beautiful success and and uh, that that comes to number one from all of us but there is silverstone there was a canadian grand prix there's a usa grand prix your so, last one, Jimmy. Yeah. You won one. at Indy. Yeah. 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 So yeah. there were so many good Grand Prix's uh, which, which were important, but Monaco is a, it's a mega, it was a mega victory, you know.
2: You were completely made up. I do remember that. Yeah. So was, happy.
1: Yes, it was really important in in that year, I think. I, When I look back now, if I would not win the Monaco Grand Prix, I don't think I could have won the World Championship. I really needed that. It was a psychological boost for me and for the team.
2: What goes on, by the way, after you win Monaco Grand Prix? You're going to dinner with the Prince Albert. Is that right?
1: Uh, it, it was a it was a, it was a gala dinner, of course, with His Highness in sporting uh, uh, black tie dinner. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic, brilliant fun, good fun indeed. Then there was a one day break and next day testing in Monza. <laughs> It was pretty tough, I That's tell you. That's full on. Isn't that it? was really tough, I tell you. Straight out the How monster. long
2: would it take you to get over a Monaco Grand Prix? Because of the intensity of, well, on track and off track, really, isn't it?
1: In in the real world, I should have like four days time to recover. You know, to 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 exercise and and to have a good sleep, uh, good normal nutrition. I think I wouldn't need four days. So it, I think one extra day because the celebration. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so is it fair to say you weren't at your best at testing on the Tuesday after your win? No, <laughs> I
1: have to admit, definitely not.
2: No, I, look, you you th- retired at the uh, end of 2001. Do you think you retired at the right time?
1: I felt it was the right time. It, it was a sabbatical,
2: actually. That's how you announced it. Or was it. Was it always going to be a retirement? Yeah, but, but
1: that, that was the right thing because, uh, because this was a psychological decision. Uh, so you never know how the people's mind is working and how it can change when you are in a certain pressure and situation, you, your your mind can change. So it was a good option to, to run. to That way we keep the door open. That way if you want to come back, we are here. Uh,
2: was it pretty clear quite quickly that you weren't going to come back?
1: It, was, it was quite clear after all. That way this is it. This I do is better. remember. Tell me
2: if I'm wrong, but I do remember you being linked with, was it Williams for a
1: bit, even B.A.R. I, maybe? Yeah, no. I, had a, I had quite a few later, four years later, I think. Three, four years later, there was a idea to come back. I got the phone call. Uh, was it Frank calling me? That way, if I'm interested to come back. And, I, and automatically, I got uh, to start thinking, hmm, this could be interesting. Well, it just didn't work out. It was too many, uh, too many things which just didn't match. It didn't match. It, it, it wasn't a good idea. And, I'm, and luckily I did listening to older drivers, some older drivers listening about their impression without, without them knowing that time anything. So it was definitely the right decision. I didn't go back. It would have been a big mistake.
2: And then since retirement, you Mika, you've, um, there's been a bit of DTM and things, but off track... Can you just explain to us your is it professional relationship with Bottas? Do you, are you do you manage him? Because
1: I'm part of the I'm part of the team for Valtteri's uh, uh, management team. Uh, we, have, we have a number of people taking care of him uh, from the start of his career. I mean, of course, of course, Valtteri had great supporters in his very early career in his karting and low formulas making a great financial effort, psychological effort to helping him. But, but I, I came to picture, was it all right, five, six years ago. Quite a, f- quite a few years, yeah, about six years ago. Uh, and, and it was uh, fascinating to see Walter's character, his performance on a racetrack and his development become a professional racing driver. And he's done a fantastic work, really great job. Do you think he's got the
2: most difficult job in Formula One, being alongside Lewis Hamilton?
1: Well, I think he has a you know be a racing driver. I think it's the easiest job to have. <laughs> I know it's a it's a such a it's, it's a Formula One. You know, to, I think it's a great to be a racing driver. I, I never would change that to anything else. We've been discussing a lot about you know. I, I had a chance to have a teammate for Nigel Mansell or Arton Senna many great drivers and, and all of these drivers have different qualities and different challenges and, and Valtteri Valtteri has, has Lewis and I understand 100% his pressure his challenges what he's going through and uh, people are people I don't think people have changed uh, of course the way that people think these days is a bit different in younger generations. What it is my time but the goal, when you're on a racetrack, the goal is the same, and the way of working with the people is the same. And, and uh, it's all about learning, learning about yourself, able to find the motivation, uh, discipline to get the success. And absolutely when you are against uh, Louis with has won of the world champions many times, he has he a has lot of information. Lot of uh, experience, what he has gathered all the years. So, so Walter is in a fascinating position uh, to able to be even better racing driver he is today, and I mean, he's doing a great, great job. My opinion, he will get to great success.
2: As part of his management team, how frustrating is it that he keeps just getting one year, one year,
1: one year? well uh if you're it, listening toto <laughs> <laughs> well it, it i i i am you know it's it's to, like to anybody you know when you are in a in a business world you wanna see the success uh from the people and uh, if you are confident with your people who you're working with that way they can manage to do the great job uh i think is a I think it's a very important way to show to company that way we're gonna do well. And uh, like like I said the earlier, what I was discussing here, do I look drivers out there that way their results? I look about their personalities, how they behave towards the team, how they motivate the team. And and I think this is such a big many elements with which are influencing the decision of the team to have driver one year or two years or 10 years. But uh, I, I think when, when you do have a great driver like Valtteri, it's, it's obvious that Walter is one of the greatest racing drivers out there in ever in his attitude and his behavior. And I think he's a great ambassador for Formula One, uh, also for Mercedes he will definitely go for great result next year. And I think the team will, they will realize something very special next year. Oh, how exciting.
2: Well, look, final question is, how mad is it that Kimi Raikkonen, a driver you raced against, is still racing?
1: <laughs> I mean, his longevity is extraordinary. Yeah, Kimi mean, to, to be so long time in Formula One, it, it, it definitely a very impressive. And uh, I have, I have, Hardly anything to say. I mean, physically, I think, yes, it is possible. Oh, but psychologically able to handle all the pressure, it's not easy. It's, it's a different life. It's a different lifestyle. Being a Formula One batter, it, it's, it's a very, very different than outside of the Formula One batter. So to be able to psychologically go through that criticism... Uh, fighting against the problems non-stop it is a, it's not the easy one especially when you are world champion especially when you have tasted the victories you know what it's like and not able to do that it's not psychologically very easy so i'm very impressed with him and uh, uh high respect that way he can do it so long it is very impressive well
2: mika what a joy to speak to you thank you so much for your time it's it's been wonderful Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for listening. Cheers.
2: Well, how about that? Mika had the hairs on the back of my neck standing up at various points during that chat, particularly when talking about the aftermath of his accident in Adelaide. I loved his thoughts on Schumacher, on Senna, on winning Monaco, on pretty much everything, really. Thank you, Mika, for your time. It was a fascinating conversation and one that I loved from start to finish. And thanks, too, to Sammy and Celine for their help and hospitality. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with yet another big name from the world of Formula One. Until then, why not subscribe to be on the grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thanks, too, for your feedback about last week's episode with Franz Tost. I thought you guys would be surprised by him and very much in a positive way. Patrick got in touch via Twitter to say this. Thank you, thank you for having Franz tossed on Beyond the Grid this week. I've been wanting to get to know more about Franz, and this did not disappoint. Such an intelligent team principal, and an even better human being. Thanks again. Well, I certainly found Franz's honesty and openness refreshing, and his passion for the sport is infectious, isn't it? And please keep your feedback coming, guys, because we love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it
1: flat out.